Bookworm Games, episode 38, A Reason to Fight. We'll start with a little recap and intro by way of the poem. Where the trees faltered in rocky sand, blasts of air from a furnace just held at bay by the thinning shadows, they looked up. High above soared a silver, massive shape, an aerial battleship, Satan said, and only moved on once it had passed. That Ellie was pursued by such a ship dazed Faye's senses. He hoped she was safe. Ahead of them the desert stretched to the hazy horizon, broken only by a single spot. Closer to the jumble of turrets and tents composed the desert outpost of Dazil. Dust rose from the dig site hard by, a little cloud over the white wall, where the heavy tread of excavators reverberated, sparks of steel on rock cascading. In the square, boards laid across flat tires for countertops. The traders hawked their bargains. Soldiers idled on watch around the gates. One raucous group hove into the public room below the inn, bragging, full of vim. The man in red made them shut up quick, looking wild and deadly, immune to their taunts. Run home to mama, he guffawed and quaffed. Doe and dynamite, what a world, how unromantic. What am I doing here? Whatever I please. Booze, my life's companion. Big Joe's the name. You think you know who you are, huh? I could introduce myself today, be a totally different person tomorrow. Back outside, Satan quipped, Certainly a man who likes to make his presence felt. Around the corner, its pennants cracking in the gritty gusts, reared the ethos workshop. Clamor spilled from a cylindrical chamber, craftsmen scurrying over the excavator, rust covered, its claws at rest for repairs. Fay watched them, thinking of his own studio, while Satan haggled with the head engineer, only civilian parts, he muttered wryly. We'll have to take another tack. Faye looked back towards the black moon, where the gear was battened and beyond. Say, Doc, could I have a word? What if we left it there, and I went back? I know it won't be easy, but I want to help rebuild Lahan. But it could not be. So long as Weltall was near... The village would never be safe, least of all for Fay. In search of the part, Satan secured a sand buggy, rented one the minute it returned to the garage, hopped aboard, and brumbled right back out. The afternoon was waning, and Fay felt restless. Big Joe, the bar still all to himself, said, expansive, as though to himself, Where's your friend? There's a war on in the desert. Don't know if you'd heard. If you care about him, don't let him get killed. Faye left him to his mug, made his way out across through the gate. The clear tracks extended, cutting across the dunes. In what is probably the most frustrating and difficult portion of the game so far, Faye has to go after Satan on foot through the desert. One could imagine a dungeon-exploring section of the game added in here, either the two of them together, or Satan alone infiltrating the dig site and finding the part they need for Weltall. But in lieu of that, here we are, crossing the sands feebly without a vehicle or companion. The game's message seems to be to impress on Faye and the player his lack of foresight, his weakness, slowness, aimlessness. The same scene of featureless sand repeats over and over. The endlessness, like that part in Final Fantasy VII in the prison under Gold Saucer. Or like some nightmare where motion is futile. Another variation on Faye's dream of sand dunes of the night before. And we might wonder, why this sort of terrain at all, and not a world map? so that we can see up close how it feels to move a step at a time over the granular sand. 
also because from that standpoint we're able to see other things and they don't see us or so it seems the gears leaping past at their higher level and at a much higher god's eye level another flying machine circular much vaster and sheathed in a force field visible as an orange glow passing overhead shaking the ground we'll learn more on that later finally after many battles against jawa looking baddies shooting wimpy pistols and swinging hooked staffs into the upteenth screen comes a crew of soldiers on dirt bikes several go zipping by then fay playing deadly earnest chicken stands forth in front of an isolated straggler who spins out and he takes his dirt bike unfortunately you don't get to control this any more than you did satan's sand buggy your progress is automatic time and space start to behave again for you so you go bunny hopping off of dunes and as dusk falls you come to a new place confronted by those gears you saw go by or ones just like them the bike gets shot out from underneath you or malfunctions somehow anyway and it looks like it will go badly for fay who ever heard of a human taking on a gear unaided but satan comes to the rescue just in time for whatever reason he's riding vel tall directly now rather than carrying him crabwise and he fires a gun to which fay apparently has no got access and carves out some breathing room that way once fay is geared up fay disposes of the foes with his fists and feet which according to satan are more powerful than that random firearm or perhaps there's a sly reference to what the doc says here to that far more destructive potential which fay has used accidentally as he remarks only fay can bring out its full potential whatever we think of satan's insistence on fay using valtal whether it's benign or or suspicious necessary or concealing some hidden agenda a quite an ambiguous figure of ambition gets introduced at this point graf considerably darker mephistopheles than the trickster big joe graf's name means count or earl german title of nobility with baroque gothic overtones count dracula he further calls himself the seeker of power and this title ties him to the nichean endeavor for which he wills fay to power as he puts it to kill mother god there is some seriously ominous imagery making up this scene going along with graf's german name the stance of him the framing with graf and his dark gear perched atop a phallic rock the human presumably perched on the shoulder of the giant arms crossed but above his shoulder a reddish full moon a maternal symbol echoing that flying saucer we saw go by perhaps and anyhow far outclassing graf's eminent position for all his pride his surging theme music accompanied by a wind which we must imagine whips his cloak very dramatically contrasting with his menacing vader like stillness all this triggers another flashback sequence for fay he already knows who graf is somehow but the knowledge is much more traumatic in this case than that of her uh, who he saw in the woods ellie it comes in the form of a blue toned flash a paralysis or time hiccup in the anime and with imagery of the child fay the flashing pendant again fallen to the ground and blood spattering the child's face then the red figure with the crooked smile and there's also familiar language of blame and cowardice but who is the culprit who the accuser who is this her they've killed 
it all gets confused with the Lahan episode. But that's starting to look like just a manifestation of some much more primordial crime. Was it the killing of a mother? Now escalating towards an attempt <clears throat> on the life of Mother God? Was it the killing of a father? As Faye redundantly stammers in incredulity. Graf puts the responsibility for the former on Faye, just as he claims responsibility for orchestrating the catastrophe at the village, sending the gears, and particularly that one gear, to awaken Faye's power. But Graf won't say more about the story than to note the beauty of his father's scream of death, than which nothing is more beautiful to him. So that's the romanticism Big Joe has been yearning for. Instead of telling more of what happened, though he seems surprised Faye doesn't know, treating him all along as if Faye knows more than he does, in fact, and perhaps not considering how effective this might be for unleashing Faye's power, Graf deems that power still too little, and that it needs proving. He summons a sandworm for the next boss fight. It's only damaged by combo attacks, so hopefully, seems almost impossible that you wouldn't, but Faye should have unlocked at least a few by now to make this fight more doable. It's this theme of education by violence and without it. All these monsters, lucus naturae, freaks of nature, arising through their evolutionary process, that nature who's so profligate with life, allowing it to be destroyed in the process of growing stronger and more fit. Whereas Faye's fighting techniques and combo points increase the more he fights in this one individual lifespan, and oppose that to his knowledge of painting, say, or his knowledge of Ellie's name, these mysterious kinds of learning the education towards which are unseen, or compare it to playing a video game, or reading for pleasure, which is very far removed from any sort of violence, it seems. And as a society, I think we seem to be dedicated more and more to the notion that learning happens best without violence. I, for one, am glad that spanking and caning weren't allowed when I was a student, but I wonder if violence doesn't then inevitably crop up in other forms the more it's repressed. These school shootings only being the most dramatic and terrible form. Just to give Graf a bit of a hearing, give the devil his due, I think it's important we at least consider that theme. Now, Satan's temporary repairs get Faye through the fight, thankfully. But the two of them are then taken prisoner by the next wave of soldiers. Graf has disappeared. He's not in the picture right now. The scene shifts to the Ave transport ship. And here the two share a comfortable, if cramped, bedroom. And Faye has a cinematic dream here. Neither one, not very much like the one before. And this is one where I sort of went to town with it in the first draft of my poem. So here's my version. All that day the sky had threatened, turning the color of bone by noon. Out from its ashen face great groans throbbed, and wind swept the wilderness. After the thunder came the promised rain, fat drops that fell in sheets. Somewhere behind the cloud pall the sun was setting, for a dirty pitch drenched the landscape too. Three figures were caught in the storm, one hunched up, 
stared into the sodden ground. His livid red locks and chalky skin did not deign to feel the damp. The rain, like it fell into fire, turned hissing to steam. The next, standing before him protectively, would not blink for watching the third. The rain welled up upon his eyebrows, and he flicked it away. O oh, Con, turn that glare from this ancient husk, said the one he faced. This cape, this brazen helm, do they hold the bringer of your downfall, of much to come? No, that which you hate and fear lurks there and grins dumbly. Embodied in your son is more than you can conceive. Your wife, though you never knew, worked to awaken him and so drew me to the lodestone of my being. Hate her, too, if your pain decrees, but you desire to come at me. Very well, die, and even then you cannot join her, but I will take the boy. With a cry that pricked the ears of wolves, Khan flung himself forward, but the black-garbed veteran parried and struck his own blows in a blur of speed. He cast him like a plaything into the mud. Khan's breath hitched as he sought to place his death curse on the man gliding near, raising a boot to smash his skull. Then an arm reached out, wrenched the victor by the shoulder, and spun him round. A crushing buffet met him and hushed his surprise mid-grunt. The enemy occupied. Khan pressed his fingers to his splintered breast. Bathed in a warm green light, the gash sealed fast. He managed to pick himself up, but barely could he follow the rapid thrust and counterpunch thrown between his son and the man in black. Bursts of red and blue, at once more ethereal and more deadly than the lightning cracks above, were cast across the ground, now pitted by deflected shots. At closer quarters, the thud of elbow or shin connecting shook the earth. The old man, Khan saw, was flagging. But he had spoken true. The fiendish curl of his son's lip did numb his mind with fear. During a lull, the boy seemed to read his thoughts. Wry-faced, he flexed his fist. Dear father, he said slowly, don't you want to lend a hand? Our foes, wily, he is holding something back. But tell me, aren't you proud of me? You were outmatched, but I will kill him soon. He made to strike his death blow then, and clove only air. The black clothing lay crumpled, and the helmet fell with a dull clang. The man had vanished. Then Khan winced. A white flash became a ghost, someone familiar looking, and gripped him hard. His consciousness tumbled in an inky mist. Images blinked by, opaque remnants of a life not his own. As in a trance he watched, through eyes made mere windows, his hands rip apart his son. His throat was laughing. The boy seemed to change as he fell into a faint, but Khan noticed nothing clearly. Swooning himself with the effort, of his will, he took up the damaged thing. He started walking, fitfully at first, and came under the dripping eaves of a forest where no beast dared accost him. Originally, I had thought about putting that in the Lahan section, but it was already so long, and it breaks up the chronology drastically compared to the game, so I moved it back here. The game juxtaposes it in this way, with the meeting with Graf, on the one hand, which triggers it, and with the surreal cosmic audience chamber of Satan and the Emperor, on the other. Waking from this dream, Faye doesn't directly address it. Either he's not ready to talk about it yet, or it's not quite surfacing in his consciousness. The doc assumes, perhaps rightly, that Graf's mention of Faye's father is what has him so dejected. 
But Faye says he's primarily concerned with the news that Groff sent the gear to Lahan to awaken him. He has been awakened to the realization that he had no memories, and hadn't noticed it until now. Whereas the awakening Groff is angling for is that of his power, precisely what Faye seems to be most unconscious of. The doc's suggestion is to get some rest, and it's not a bad one. If it, after all, is through dreams that Faye seems to be processing all of this. And even if you ask to talk a little more with him, he'll only allow you to once, and then he defaults to send you to rest. While Faye does so, Sutan enters a kind of lucid dream or astral projection. Though his body is still in prison, somehow he is also standing in an impossible trans-dimensional space where a bizarre visaged being is enthroned on a floating dais. Around them, two-dimensional scenes swing in a vast elliptical orbit with the sound of a slow pendulum and the creaking of a great tree or wooden ship. From parenthetical telepathic speech, Satan addresses the being, the emperor face to face. It was him, there's no mistaking. But which one is him? Does he mean Graf, or that destroyer that Faye became? Well, if we presume Satan has been in touch with the Emperor before this, and hadn't noticed Graf distinctly in the village, it must be Graf that he means this time. The Emperor doesn't seem concerned. His words, though, form a direct counter to Graf's intention. Satan has asked if it could be the time of the gospel. Here's some quoting from the game. Yes, the gospel. We are the people expelled from paradise and forced to live on the cruel surface of the earth. We who fill this land will once again return to the presence of God in paradise and live there eternally. That is the time of the gospel. That time is at hand. We, the gazelle, must find God's resting place by then and resurrect him. That is our final prayer. Our final prayer? Our final prayer to escape from the fate that was determined at our genesis. Again, there's a lot of typographically interesting stuff going on there, so I suggest looking at that text um, either in a Let's Play or on the script provided in the notes to the episode, <clears throat> courtesy of StarCraft's Wall. You got the gospel, capitalized with little dashes around it, which I take to be italics, uh, time likewise, and fate. So those three are kind of linked visually in that way. Whereas the word God, paradise, earth, all of these are actually lowercase and don't seem to be italicized. Um, gazelle is capitalized, but not italicized. Uh, so whatever that is about. Oh, and Genesis, yeah, also not a proper noun in this case, just the common meaning. Um, but certainly a loaded term, after all. How does the appearance of Graf, the adversary, signal that the time of promise is at hand? The connection is not directly explained. But it seems fair that some kind of apocalyptic crisis is at work, where disasters signal coming salvation to the zealous. The discussion of paradise could map either onto the mythic Garden of Eden, or to the literal spaceship from the prologue, or maybe these two are sort of being conflated here, resurrection, rather than killing God, and is masculine in this case, rather than feminine, Resurrection is to be the work of the gazelle, and they are to be rewarded with eternal life. Now, just looking up that name gazelle, I don't know how accurate this is, but BibleStudyTools.com seems to think that gazelle is a word that appears in the Hebrew Old Testament, meaning robbery, something plundered and can also mean denial, perhaps. So that's an interesting thing to call oneself. It's a plural, it's a group of them, apparently, for whom the emperor stands. 
the gazelle will be rewarded with eternal life. Returning to space, although they already float above the surface of the earth, seems to be the transcendence they seek, an escape from the earth and humanity. Such is their Gnostic gospel of good news, to be accomplished in time and thus put an end to the fate they suffer under. Developing the motif of freedom in a much more upbeat fashion now, the scene shifts to a wholly new set of characters. Lest we were starting to feel claustrophobic within Faye's recurring issues or a certain amount of vertigo from Satan's unfolding secrets, we see through the periscope of the pirate's sand cruiser as they prepare to launch a sneak attack on the transport where our heroes are being held. The heroic music, the headstrong young captain with his rakish eye patch, the military jargon of gun turrets, radar reports, and BATCON level 1 triggering its alarm all recall the prologue, but invert the spirit of it. Our sympathies are with the aggressors this time, and they'll be striking a blow for liberation. The first mate and the elderly gentleman who plead for the young master to slow down are rightly ignored as he focuses on steering once they surface in the wind. The guns fire as Satan and Fay watch the action and feel the impact, serendipitously ripping the locked door open, and the goal of both sides becomes to reach the gear before the ship sinks. Through the hissing sand, so that the whole place is like being trapped in an hourglass, whereas the audience chamber was like being inside a clock. Satan and Faye go hopping along, dodging fires and dispatching puny soldiers, climbing up to the deck, where they split up again, Satan to swing the crane around, and Faye to carefully run along its arm and slide down the rope at the end to reach Veltal. They fly away from the sinking carrier, Another power which hasn't been manifested before, which doesn't seem to be under Faye's conscious control. While the straight-laced Satan, who seems able to operate and fix all sorts of machines, has a wild ride in the palm of the hand. See another great line here. It feels like you have sacked your socules and tickled your utricles enough for one lifetime. Wow, dizzy. As they admire the automatic capacities of this Kislev experimental gear. Does that mean Gruff works for Kislev then? They're accosted by the pirate in his red knight gear, sporting an eye patch and a white plume on its brow. The fight with this whip-wielding pirate, yet another fight Faye has not sought out but is forced into nonetheless, gets cut short by the cruel surface of the earth, which actually proves merciful, in this case, the quicksand through which they drop safely and find themselves in a grand cavern where the roaming camera lights on blinking sensors, shafts of light glowing with dust motes. There's the sound of water dripping. It soon transpires that the pirate was mistaken after all. Faye's no soldier, and he's no coward either. The pirate, for his part, is not what he seems either. His crew up above have rounded up all survivors from the transport vessel. They celebrate that there's no casualties, except for the nurse, who's chagrined. And it seems that Satan and the first mate, Sigurd, have some sort of history. The man he calls Hyuga explains it is no coincidence, but inevitable. That same fate, Alice seems to have recognized, that fate the gazelle have struggled with for eons. All in all, back in the cave, they take it in stride. As Faye says, it's just one more in a series of remarkable events. 
and he and Bart agree to a truce until they find the way out. The parallel is not as spelled out as the sea of trees to sea of sand and now a stalactite cave in phase words, but Bart's in the role of Ellie, although a friend rather than a lover, introduced in the guise of an aggressor. They move a huge boulder together, much as Faye did back in the woods by himself, and explore the sealed area beyond. They nearly start a scrap for all Bart's liberal upbringing, but needs must, and they set their differences aside once again. So the whole question of the subterranean nature of the unconscious has been implied from the beginning of the game, where Faye is painting in his cellar and is contrasted with the various kinds of intellect and pride represented in different ways, from the prologue spaceship, Satan on his mountaintop, Solaris with its flying capital, the emperor on his dais, and Graf on his rock pillar. Now we find ourselves literally underground, in the company of a pirate whose specialty seems to be moving between the sea of sand and the surface. It's the first section of the game featuring gear exploration, which lends a certain urgency in the form of limited fuel, though it's nowhere near as frantic as it was on the sinking ship with the sand, explosions, and tilting. Again, there's no music here outside of battles. Instead, the silence and emptiness only makes it that much more eerie when you find the only person living down here. It's a relief to meet the excavation robot, who can replenish your fuel and let you know you're on the right track. But Old Man Bao, short for Balthazar, on the other hand, is much more complex. He too promises to help you find the way out, but in his house, one of the most chilling sequences to this point in the game unfolds. So I meant to write more poetry at this point, but I didn't really get around to it yet, so just a few quick vignettes to bring us up to speed. Got Faye alone in front of the laggard biker who braked hard and spun out. Then Graf, his stern helmet, regarded him from the shoulder of a dark gear, moon and stars behind. The bulbous, wasted worm summoned from its den. And then we come down to the underground. Although I'd really like to write some of that poetry between Bart and Faye as they have their little agon, a little conflict. But so, yellow light glimmered in the depths of the cave, spilling from windows of a lonely house around a dim form in the doorway. Dismounting, Faye and Bart boldly hailed him. A croaking voice answered, Come on back. Make yourselves at home. Thought I heard gears. I assume they are yours. Awful screeching that one's knee is making. Walking on it can't be easy. I could take a look if you like. In the hall, he said to call him Old Man Bow, hardly less of a mouthful than Balthasar. And on the shelves, another enigma, sconces and skulls, empty then full from ten thousand years before the present. The Fossicker explained, as Faye had seen, how no human remains dated from before, defying evolutionary aeons, agreeing with an older myth. They say humans lived with God long ago in a paradise in the sky together, free from pain, until the forbidden fruit they ate Forfeiting protection gave them wisdom. For that sin they fell, driven out, defying God, and were destroyed with all their arms, giants of war. God himself was not unhurt. He took refuge beneath the ocean. He slept. But here I am, rambling on. With Baal's story, 
prompted by the question about the skulls. The music swells, chilling, tantalizing, a variant of the prologue theme, just as his myth contains pieces of what we saw happen. From him, you can also learn some practical things about upgrading your gears. He'll sell you parts and tell you about the charge and boost commands in battle. But once you make your way back to reset the sand sensors, allowing him to open the barrier, he has a couple things further to say. Bart asks now about the god gear, and Bao goes along with it at first, but it turns out it's like the wag at the bar in Lahan, before abruptly reversing to say it's just a story to inspire people. The Omni-gear, as we'll learn, is just a story, insofar as, in fact, there is more than one. Then, making repairs to Weltall, he says, aghast, this is the host of the Slayer, oh, sorry, the host of the spirit of the Slayer of God. And then, when Faye tries to ask him what he just said, he's all, nothing. It's just like what Mason will do later over tea. Only then, Mason is proud of his young master and trusts the two newcomers, and so he tells the truth, which slipped out unbidden. Here, Baal flatly refuses to elaborate. He gruffly sends his guests on their way. There's a little more spelunking beyond the reopened door, but Baal doesn't accompany you any further. It's as if he's put up a wall, despite what he'd said about needing to be able to get in and out, too. So, almost out of the cave, beyond the excavation area with its gondola ride, a huge silver-gray gear swoops in on a jetpack. The fight is probably the toughest one so far, as this big fella holds its own against Faye and Bart both. Once it's down, Bart lets his guard down to mock it, but Faye sees it's only playing possum. Finally, he tells Bart to get back, crushing the calamity gear with an unknown power, but without a total loss of consciousness this time. So we actually see, along with Faye, the dark aura emanating from Weltall's fists as they land, utterly scrapping the big boss. And of course, Calamity's look and attacks will be echoed later in Saibzen, and we'll get more of his story then. On emerging from the cave, the capitals, two peaks in the midst of the flat desert, are conspicuous, as is Bart's surprise at how far you've traveled underground, and his mention of that, Ave, being his hometown. I'm sorry, Bledovic. All that is pretty clearly suggesting for us the next arc of the story. Uh, before long, you're back with the rest of the crew aboard the Yggdrasil, the Norse world tree, water of life in the desert, and again, moving between the levels of deeps and surface and, though not yet, the sky. It's also the home uh, of Bart, at least, but it, it even feels homey and safe and comfortable for the first time since leaving Lahan. It is a town, like every town, full of NPCs with their own stories, which you can see a little bit of in the bunk room. By visiting the engine room or the bridge, you might begin piecing together some of Bart and Sig and Mason's backstory, how the two of them lost their eyes, how the two of them are responsible for the other's upbringing, how they all make their living. In the gear hangar, you get to see for the first time how many party members you'll eventually have, based on the many open spots remaining around the giant room. And you start to feel the importance of money by upgrading your gears there yet again and buying speed rings from Mason. At least that's what I always like to buy. Back at the hideout, there's still more the sense of homecoming, bittersweet for Faye, and it turns out for Bart too, who on the one hand is in his element, 
that adorable interaction with the item sound as the kids get some amber, which to them is way cooler than a couple people and a gear. They run off in high spirits, just as Faye and Bart can no longer do. And again, that weight of responsibility, that burden of expectation, now that this new vulnerability that comes of making a friend. Whereas Faye, who is in anguish precisely because he doesn't know who he is or what is expected of him, knows he wants not to have to fight, and yet everyone keeps telling him that he must, uh, what he must do, of course, is disentangle the reasons they all have for telling him this, and then make up his own mind. Exploring the base, we see a child reunited with her dad, see an orphan trailing a granny. After that tea scene with old Mason, whose name means house in French, and who talks of the cafeteria being gauche, and exudes a mixture of Batman's Alfred and the old retainer of some once great family. The young prince, for now we know that's who he is, invites his guests to view the ancient scroll, his father Edbart's prized possession. They view it on the advanced technology provided by Sigurd, for which explanations we'll have to wait for now. There the founder of the Fatima line is shown body cloaked in flames, making a blood oath with the giants. It's a ready-made poetic line, if ever I heard one. And then we see them putting the giants to rest once their work founding the kingdom is done. This 500-year-old artifact, like the gears and parts, should be in the hands of the ethos who excavate ruins, but Bart is ever the renegade. The Yggdrasil itself is powerful, of course, but excavating proved too slow with their limited resources, so they turned to piracy. The still greater heirloom, the Fatima Jasper, is apparently another thing Satan somehow knows about, but one Bart will only say that Shakan, the usurper and killer of the royal family, is after. That's all he'll have to say for now. And that's apparently why he kidnapped Margie, the royal cousin, the great mother of Nisan. As all this heroic material unrolls for us like a legendary picture scroll, lost treasure, kidnapped royalty, righteous vengeance, Faye's nature rebels at the escalation. He already hasn't told Satan what's really bothering him, and he's even more taciturn upon returning with Bart. Now, uh, the prince has already asked Faye's pardon for the whole ambush thing, though he hasn't precisely apologized. And Bart now really puts his foot in his mouth, saying he wishes he had Faye's power on his side as he's already gleefully imagining his new friend fighting by his side and rescuing Margie and reclaiming the throne at last, probably swinging on a chandelier or something, Bart's gotten a little ahead of himself, for Faye is deeply offended by what he said. Faye's surely thinking of Graf's will to power and what it cost him in Lahan. Bart nearly catches him snooping around his room, which has the legend Enter and Die inscribed on the door. He looks forward, as he says to himself, to fighting him. That should be fun. But then again, he gets Faye's pain once he's talked to Satan about the story of what happened. It seems Satan leaves out their meeting with Ellie. Um, for all that Bart's plea for forgiveness makes sense, he still insists that Faye has a reason to fight for those kids, for his friends and neighbors. And yet, he wisely leaves it up to him to make his own decision. He doesn't rise to Faye's aspersions that 
he likes fighting and doesn't understand. Possibly. Faye is still stinging from what Ellie said, too. At any rate, that language of cowardice running away comes back to the surface in the moving sequence which follows, in which Sigurd intercedes as they overlook Bart talking to his own lost father at the ship's prow. Sig says something very much like what Ellie did, that he senses that Fay and Bart are somehow the same, and they should help one another bear those mysterious burdens if they can. Who they are runs deeper than being a prince or a freakishly powerful fighter. As Sig sees it, they are kindred spirits, lonely old souls trying their best. And Sig and Satan should know a thing or two about friendship and humanity, after all, as we'll see. The trick bowl decker bunks where the crew read and play cards, the gear hangar and shops where it seems there's a counterpart to Bart's gear, Brigandier, a green and gold mech called Heimdall. The Heim part seems to mean home. It's another Norse name. This is apparently the gatekeeper of Asgard, the court of the gods. And the mechanics, dutifully cleaning up the sand that's leaked in everywhere and making repairs to the gears, notice some black boxes, so-called, in Veltal, which they can't account for and don't know what they do. But once you turn in for the night, the last sequence of this peaceful, friendly interlude takes place. We switch perspective once more, only this time it's an enemy periscope, for sure, attempting to infiltrate the rebel base, casting lascivious eyes on their technology, drilling through the defenses. The night attack by Gebler plunges us back into combat mode. Flashbacks of Lahan are inescapable. Only this time, Satan himself takes to a gear, the wild stallion, Heimdall. And despite what he'd said about not being able to use Veltal as well as Fay, he seems quite capable anyway of whooping up on the Gebler crack troops alongside Bart and his soldiers. <clears throat> Fay is uncertain about getting involved at first, but he soon comes to the decision that his friends have been pulling for. Uh, incidentally, also the decision that Grauf has been pushing him towards, and does so just in time to save a couple of innocents, very much like those kids in his village, very much like himself and Ellie, actually, as the one kid attempts to stand up barehanded against this monster who takes pleasure in threatening children. And the Gebler team all do have distinct personalities, it seems. They at least have different sort of ways of talking, different character profile images, and distinct gears as well, for the most part, although there are a couple overlapping. Um, they, in that sense, represent a kind of foil to Faye and his party. Um, they fight as a team, although never all together at once, at least not so far. Um, and in this battle, Faye doesn't seem to have to call upon any secret powers. It's all pretty manageable, especially once you've got Bart and Satan on your side as well. That, despite the fact that, as Satan points out, they're using that stuff. They're using what he calls drive, a drug that prevents them from being knocked out of the fight as easily as they otherwise would be. About that, we'll have to say a little more another time. But anyway, once they're cleared out, the next objective, as we've expected, is to rescue Margie. And that 
will occupy us in our next episode. I will say real quick here that there's a number of texts that I thought might be relevant for this section of the game. Unfortunately, I haven't actually read any of Adler, the psychoanalysis uh, forefather, along with uh, Jung and Freud, of course. Adler is famously associated with the power drive, or even the death drive, and uh, that's about all I know about his outlook. Um, so I can't recommend any particular texts for him, unfortunately, but just kind of to read up on him maybe and pick something to read. Um, I certainly will try to do so. The other text, naturally enough, is the one I've alluded to a couple times here, that is Nietzsche. And I have never read his Will to Power. I understand that it's kind of a compilation of some texts that were left uh, posthumously put together by his daughter, maybe? Um, so I've never read that one, but uh, it's certainly a concept, the will to power that comes up in his other writings, uh, and pretty much you can't go wrong reading just about anything by Nietzsche. I think it's super interesting and very much misunderstood in, in the context of its influence on later events in Germany. Um, but of course, that whole uh, history is in the background as well. World War II, Nazism, I think is part of Graf's whole iconography as well. So reading a little World War II history might not be amiss here either. Of course, there's always more to read. Okay, that's probably enough rambling on just like old man Baal, um, who incidentally, that's a name that doesn't, I don't think, appear in the Bible. It's actually from later traditions that we get those names for the wise men, the magi. Uh, but, yeah, why not read some gospel while you're at it? Uh, good book. Okay, I'll let you guys go. Thanks again for listening.